This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Two Condoms and a Poem edition. It's Wednesday, December 28th, 2016. On today's show, we're going to explain what the fuck we mean by that title. <laughs> <laughs> today's show is a little different. We're not doing three topics. We're doing one giant advice-based call-in show with our special guest, Mallory Ortberg, of course, of Dear Prudence fame. Mallory, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for welcoming me. I first learned of Mallory Ortberg's existence on the show, I think, when Dana endorsed the toast. Yay! Dana it all was like, comes back to my endorsement. Dana was like a very early endorser of the toast among my taste-making friends. When it was but the slightly warm piece of bread. Yeah. It, it became was, completely it toasted. Was, it freshly popped um, from the toaster. And so, anyway, it feels like full circle, Mallory, to have you on our show. It feels great to be on the show. Uh and I just feel like I need to start by saying that I was prepared to take this call on my couch at home <laughs> when I got the email reminding me that I had, in fact, agreed to come to the studio. So please picture me literally flying into the studio full of embarrassment and out of breath. That's a great mental situation from which to give advice, I think. Yeah. Who doesn't want an advice columnist who doesn't have human failings like being late to their own taping? <laughs> I am composed almost primarily of human failings. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll fit right in. We're joined by uh, Julia Turner, Slate's uh, editor. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. And Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey. I also feel the need, since you guys don't have the visuals, Steve and Mallory, to tell you that Julia and I here are, for the very first time, I think, ever during a Gabfest taping, sharing a bottle of white burgundy. We never drink while taping because we're morning tapers, but... Hey, it's holiday afternoon time. Wow, white burgundy. That is fancy. It makes me want to throw some ice cubes in there just to freak out the square. <laughs> <laughs> we're keeping it very fancy over here. All right. Before we start taking calls, um, Julia, we have some business to attend to, no doubt. Um, just a few minor pieces. The first is that our listeners may not know that Mallory's incarnation of Dear Prudence is not only a star of Slate's screens, it also uh, exists in podcast form. Mallory has been doing a wonderful podcast of her own. You can check it out on iTunes, or if you are a Slate Plus member, you can get extended, supersized, maximo versions of each episode. Uh, if you are not a Slate Plus member, now is a very good time to become one. You can do so at slate.com slash culture plus. It's a great way to hear our bonus segments, hear Mallory's supersized podcast, and to support Slate and the journalism that we do. That's it, Steve. All the business for this week. All right. Thanks, Julia. Let's proceed. Why don't we go to our first phone call? Hi, Culture Gap Best. I am hoping you can help me out. I have a new son. He's only four months old, but I'm already excited about all the prospects for uh, introducing him to my favorite book. And I have grand hopes that he will be a lover of literature, even though his dad is not so much uh, into reading, especially not fiction. But I've been... Um, Reading lately about all the the great things that come with being a fiction reader, including uh, increased empathy, uh, ability to understand um, emotions and uh, nuances and character. And so I uh, am eager to make sure that he follows in my footsteps as a fiction lover. And I'm hopeful that um, that you all, as parents, might have some advice on how to foster that love of reading early, books that I can introduce him to, um, you know, over the coming months and years, and also um, any uh, recommendations on specific books. Okay, thanks so much. We've done call-in shows before, but they're usually like talk about a culture topic call-in shows. And this is the first one in which we've explicitly asked to be asked for advice. Um, and it raises the interesting question of like, how judgmental do you get about the emotional assumptions of the person who asked the question? I, I find myself resisting and wanting to convince her that it's fine if her son never reads, which is not how I actually really feel. <laughs> I did wonder why the husband came up and it makes it under, makes you understand why she would want this extra support to turn her, her child into a reader. Um, I don't know. I guess, I guess it doesn't bother me as much. It, it makes me feel like maybe we should be the, the book brigade that comes in and, and supplies her with some ideas. Steve, Mallory? 
I get the idea, uh, and this is a totally just my guess, but that they've had a couple of conversations and he might be the type of person like my brother who you need to like provide with evidence uh, before they'll listen to your point of view. And so she had to come up with a list of like, well, here's why reading is, is not just something fun I want our kid to do. Like it'll increase empathy. I promise this will bring value to our like joint venture of a child, which I think is kind of adorable and weird. I kind of resist the empathy argument for reading. Like, I think it might be true. I'm suspicious of the literature that suggests it's true. It seems a little squishy to me. Um, it seems like intuitively plausible. You have to imagine yourself into other people's perspectives and get a, you know, beautifully rendered experience of how things that you haven't been through feel. Like, all that seems to the good. But, yeah, there's something, like, utilitarian about this approach to fiction that um, seems odd. Right. Books in, empathy out. Yes. Uh, right, right, right. It'll raise my kids' EQ and they'll be better able, able to manipulate others in the workplace. Um, <laughs> I, I think there are two interesting and um, unanswerable questions implied it, um, in this question. One is, um, do your kids tend to react with or against um, your highest hopes for them? Um, I, I, I the, the single most literary couple I know, there were 20 years older than I am, both of them massively accomplished uh, book people, surrounded their kids, I mean, just bathed them in um, dead trees when they were growing up, and um, their kids couldn't flee hard enough. They now live in environments that are radically book-free and have grown up, I think, both to be hand gliders or something. But Julia, that is an interesting question. Do you already have imaginative sympathy and that's why you're attracted to books? Or in reading books, do you develop an imaginative sympathy? Has anyone ever been able to answer that question? I mean, it seems to me you probably already have a pretty serious propensity in that direction, and then books just augment it in a way. I mean, I couldn't imagine taking someone with a with a low empathetic quotient and turning them into someone with a high one by reading to them. Well, it's also an unanswerable question because it's the forbidden experiment, right? Like who's going to take a child and try to bring them up deprived of books and empathy so that we can see what happens if they don't get them? <laughs> I mean, it's all something that has to be reverse engineered from adulthood. Yeah, you need twins. You need to separate them at birth. You need one to be raised completely, you know, literacy free. Yeah, it's a little, yeah. For all the shade that I'm throwing at the tenor of this question, like I have, I have done this. I have created small book nerds in the last four years. I love that the question was just, do you guys recommend any specific books? And we're all like 10 minutes in, like, but should your children read? Is this a question worth asking? When I think like all of us are probably pretty big readers, it's kind of a wonderful thought experiment when we all know we're going to answer her question. Yeah. Well, so I will say um, our home is full of books for kids. Our kids love reading them. It's been really interesting to see that effect on them. So far, I would not say I've noticed any great capacity for empathy. That's not true. Last Yesterday, one of them picked up the lovey of the other one for him while he was taking a nap and had dropped it. Ah, oh, how cute. But w what I find is that they, they're very immersed in stories, and it makes them really interested in visual things, and it helps them learn the names of things, and that it actually makes them interested in performing stories. Like one of my sons has started narrating his activities. Like he'll be like, I want to eat cake, he said. Like, <laughs> which I may be raising a sociopath thanks to books. But um, anyway, I, I, in terms of the specific ones, like, I don't, I sort of don't think it matters. Like, they, I don't know, the books they like are terrible, some of them, or, or weird, like the Richard Scarry, like, tons of planes books. And I feel like it's a constant fight to, like, push for a book with a scrap well, Are you of daring narrative. to trash Richard Scarry? I love Richard Scarry, but I like a story. Some some of those have stories we have to stop a lot for like labeling all the all the time, right? But I think that's that's a really important part of I don't know how, how this relates to empathy later in life, but just engaging with the book as an object is a really huge thing when the child is a baby. Like this woman says, her son is four months old. I think that's about how old my daughter was when she first reached out to touch the page of a book that I was reading to her, and I'll never forget it. And to me, that was her first moment, not only of interacting with a book, but it was her first moment of sort of like reaching for an object that I remember, you know, trying to like grasp an object and hold it. And it was one of those books that has crinkly pages yes. and rattly pages. Yes. And who knows what it was about? It was a book about farms, but it was a book that the kid could do something with that gave them a feeling of power. And I just remember that little hand reaching for that crinkly barn, you know, and realizing that it was like the bone being thrown into the air in 2001 a Space Odyssey, you know, that some kind of awakening of consciousness was happening then. So, I mean, I really, on a 
almost think at, at that age, it doesn't matter what book it is. It matters that you sit with them in a book and enjoy it and that they enjoy your enjoyment of it. All right, let's uh, skip to the next question. Hi there, this is Tootie from Washington, Vermont. My question is, can you advise a few lines of poetry or song lyrics or quotes that every suitor needs to know to be effective? For example, all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes, period. You get the idea. Um, help. Thanks so much. So two points here. First, I'm pretty sure the 2D from Vermont came on our blueberry hike this summer after our show at the Mount. I'm pretty certain that it, it it's a memorable combination of unusual name and state. Uh, so if so, hi, hi, Judy. Thanks for calling in. Also, if you are a Slate Plus member, you might get to go on a hike with us someday. Um, also, because this question is about dating and dating tactics, we thought we should bring in a ringer, Andrea Salenci, a uh, heroic longtime producer of The Gist Now, the producer and star of her own wonderful podcast, YOY. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Culture Catfest. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, so we want your wisdom. Well, my first thought was don't. Poetry is not going to be effective in courtship. Um, and I just know that as someone who is on a ton of dating apps, who anytime someone sends me a poem is horrified. Um, I did a quick search of OkCupid for you guys. Like looked up the phrase roses are red. Here is Irish Pride 17603. He's 34 years old. He says, Roses are red, true love is rare, booty, 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 rockin' everywhere. <laughs> no. Uh, here's Wait, is that a, was that a, a was that an original composition and B was that directed at anyone's particular or that's just it's just how he starts his profile. I have four of these. Okay. First of all, I don't think it's cool to dox me live on the culture. <laughs> uh, we have a let's play Mau Mau, who's 26 years old. He says, "Roses are red. My name is Dave. This poem makes no sense. Microwave." <laughs> We have Eddie Rice. He's 26. He lives in London. He says, violets are blue. Roses are red. Let's do it backwards. That's what she said. Uh, <laughs> oh. I don't think this is the type of poetry our letter writer had in mind. No, but I'm just saying that I, when I see a poem in an online dating kind of context, I turn and run. And this also happens to me on The Bachelorette. Anytime a bachelor comes to the winning bachelorette and he tries to read her a poem, it's a nightmare. Um, okay, but are we talking only about yeah. original compositions from non-poets? Because I think what Judy here is suggesting is deferring to the greats. However, I will also stipulate that that is not always an effective tactic because once as a youth, I believe on the first night I ever smoked pot, uh, the full text of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock was claimed to me. <laughs> the full text? It was a long drive we were on. Also, perhaps Someone ill-advised. Someone really liked you. Given the pot. But wait, uh, what, in, in, an, in an amatory <laughs> context? It was like, hey, look, I memorized this. You seem literary. We're a little bit high. <laughs> Like, <laughs> hey, look, my libido is made of dust. Well, it's not a very romantic Are poem. you a baby? You can't even eat a fucking peach. <laughs> Are you a patient euthanized upon a table, baby? Because you're she looking pretty good right ride. now. <laughs> it was you... like a hard pass. All right, I think we're Have settling you... on a thesis here, which is choose your fucking poem carefully. Yeah, and I think it should come from you. Come from you in what sense? I mean, I don't think we could recommend a poem to her. I think. For example, she gave us her favorite lines. I think it it's so personal that if we just we can't be a cheat sheet for her romance. Right. Well, I mean, I guess as somebody who just sort of wants to stand up for poetry independently of its use in amatory situations, like if you're only using the poem as a piece of, you know, transactional as as a tool to get somebody to get it on with you, whatever, get up, go to the next level, then it, it can't be about the poem itself. In other words, the mere idea of having this sort of weaponized poetry that's ready for all occasions <laughs> just goes back to those gross pickup sites, you know, that we were all reading about a few months ago about the how to talk to any woman so she'll have sex with you or whatever. And it's a huge degradation, not just to women, but to poetry. So, Dana, I have just one thing to say to you. Lay your sleeping head, my love, <laughs> on my faithless arm. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children. <laughs> And the grave proves the child ephemeral. <laughs> I 
again. In my arms till break say, of day. <laughs> let the living creature lie. Mortal. Guilty. But to me, the entirely beautiful. You, you don't do poetry voice, right? Like we all need to avoid poetry voice. Um, but I do, I do worry. I think we're all a little afraid of, of crowding into uh, stereotypes that we know we inhabit because I, I, I feel like we've come down so far. I'm like, don't make your kids read. Uh, you can't create empathy in other people. Don't share poetry with someone that you're romantically interested in. Just sit on a log. Um, Avoid guys... the written word like it's fucking VD is basically what we're right. doing. Uh, have you guys ever read um, P.G. Woodhouse's uh, – Woodhouse, sorry uh, – short essay, uh, The Alarming Spread of Poetry? Because I feel like that's where we're heading right now, uh, which has one of the most fantastic lines in it. Uh, in the good old days, poets were for the most part confined to garrets, which they left only for the purpose of being ejected from the offices of magazines to which they attempted to sell their wares. Nobody ever thought of reading a book of poems unless accompanied by a guarantee from the publisher that the author had been dead at least a 100 years. Poetry, like wines, certain brands of cheese and public buildings, was rightly considered to improve with age, and no connoisseur could have dreamed of filling himself with raw, indigestible verse warm from the maker. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so read that. Here's one thing I will say. I do think that – I don't know if, if you feel this, Dana and Steve, but I feel like the current age of flirting is super verbal and super like there's you know, all sorts of byplay and – you know, the deployment, the, the clever, crafty deployment, I mean, or to take Dana, the it's in how you use it, uh, maxim of this, um, like, I don't know, like, it's just, it's a very verbal time. It's a very text based time for flirting, it seems. And I feel like that's good news for the nerds, like the kind who are at this table. And I bet somebody out there is like, rocking some John Donne in an effective manner. Oh, John Donne is very, very sexy poetry. But I just once again, I just think it has to come from it has to come from the person who's saying it to the person you're saying it to. That just seems so incredibly yeah, obvious. Yeah, the idea that you that you go around, you know, within your wallet, you've got two condoms and a poem. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to fly. John, one and done is. <laughs> All right, awesome, Andrea. I don't know if we changed your mind because I'm not sure if we changed our own minds. But uh, if you if you want to conduct an episode of your show entirely in verse, we're available. That is great news. Thank you, guys. Thanks for coming on. All right, why don't we move on to our next uh, next question? Hello, Gapfesters. My name is Zach, and I'm from Mountain View. Um, I'm a math PhD student, um, and I have ambitions of making in, in academia. And since you all have found success in what I imagine are competitive industries. I think you might know what I mean when I talk about um, this nagging voice that's always in the back of my head whenever I'm goofing off, which says, hey, shouldn't you be working right now? Shouldn't, isn't there some work you could be getting done right now? So um, I'm wondering if you guys can talk about how you deal with that. How do you uh, prioritize leisure and recharging your batteries. Um, how much do you recharge your batteries? And how do you uh, avoid the guilt that that voice in the back of your head is trying to make you feel? All right, thank you so much. The hard thing about having a, a really formless work life is you always have work, right? You never don't have work. I mean, especially, you know, Dana and I both are on book, book contracts, right? It's like having a fantastically huge, um, you know, homework assignment hanging over you for years at a time. So the the ch challenge you would think would be, well, you know, hewing to a rigorous schedule, getting the amount of work done that you need to do, um, being internally disciplined and on and on. I actually think the challenge, Dana, is the, is the other way. It's accepting that you're done for the day, you know, this waking anxiety dream has to come to an end or your mental health is at stake. You've got to set it aside. You've got to spend time with your loved ones or do something completely frivolous and disconnected from it and just not carry it around with you, you know, elsewhere. 
I don't know. I mean, I wish I were better at this and had better advice to offer about it. I mean, I, this is the thing that I keep returning to on this show, and it ends up making me sound like a zealot about something that I'm very unzealous about and only managed to do about, I don't know, slightly over half the time. But I have my whole tech Sabbath thing, right, where I try to not work, basically, I, where I try to not be on a device or be freaking out about my relationship to work or texts, as Mallory would say, or, you know, adding to the body of literature in the world between sundown Friday and sundown Saturday, basically the Jewish Sabbath, right? And a lot of the time what ends up happening during that time might not even be qualified as leisure. It might be like doing the laundry while listening to a podcast or I don't know, that's the time when that's the time when I actually do self-care, as the millennials are always saying, you know, when I sort of like do errands for myself or take a bath or have sex or do something that has absolutely nothing to do with the mind and everything to do with the body, like baking or some stuff like that. So <laughs> Friday and Saturday are those days for me. And it may be that there's other days that those activities spread into the weekend or taking up time that I should be doing work. But at the very least, I've sort of thought like, OK, I had that island of just being a person, you know, being a, a body in the world, doing what my body wants to do. And to the to the degree that I stick to that, I think that I feel better and have a, a better week the week after. I, I love the way I love the way how half a glass into a white burgundy uh, Dana turns into a nice then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with her long, sensual novels about folding the laundry and listening to podcasts. Uh, that's not all you talked about. <laughs> um, I don't have your technology policy, but I basically have the same policy. Like, I don't work on Saturday, and I try not to work on Friday night. Like, it's family time. It's like family adventure. It's go do a thing you have never done before. Eat a meal. Just, like, be with your people. Right. It's almost like living in the pre-digital age, you know? I mean, whatever your relationship is to your devices during that time, like maybe you look at them to look at a map so you can go to the museum you want to go to with your family or something, but you're treating them as a means to be a person enjoying the world and not as this kind of virtual space that you have to go anxiously inhabit. Yeah, right. Like don't put your head into the into the virtual digital space. So I believe in that. I also like strongly believe in compartmentalization of your stress. It gets a bad rap from psychiatric professionals, but I basically think it's useful. I don't know. If you have a job, I mean, we all have so much work. Like if you have a lot to do so much that you can't possibly get everything done by the end of the day, like there's not like a set of tasks for today. And then I do those tasks and there's no more tasks. And tomorrow I'll see what new tasks wash up. Like that would be crazy if that were what my job were like. It's not. It's like one continuous running list forever and ever. And I... You know, you got to do as much as you can do in the time that you have to work in a given day. And sometimes that means putting in some hours after the kids go to bed. But then at a certain point, it's like it's it's time to unplug and, and just be a human again. And I think the recognition that it's a marathon and not a sprint and like the whole thing will go better if you actually get enough sleep and don't get sick and take care of yourself and eat a real meal and have some vegetables and eat some vitamins and get a haircut every few months, like all of that. You have to make time for it. You're just going to be worse at everything. One tactic that is not revolutionary that I find useful is like the list. Like if everything is recorded that must be done at some point in one place, then I can put that list somewhere and be like, okay, you know, this is sort of the getting things done strategy. Like it is known. It is known what the task ahead is. I'm just going to go ignore it for a few hours. I, I don't relate to this problem. Um, I have the exact opposite problem. My My nature is one of sloth and indolence. So I, I do not ever experience guilt when I am doing something that pleases me and uh, have to much more often remind myself uh, that I am not hedonism bought and it is time to do work. Um, so I just I, – I got nothing for you, my friend. Um, I, I do not understand that impulse. I much more often have to you know smack myself upside the head with something by John Calvin um, and make myself you know commit an act of chores – Buckle down. Exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't. All right. I, I don't share your problem. All right. Next question. Hey, Gabfest. Um, I need your help with some cultural advice. My daughter is getting married this summer, and I need to pick a great song for the father-daughter dance. I don't want anything overly sentimental or referencing butterfly kisses. Can you give me some advice? And as a bonus, what song was played at your wedding? Well, I think you got to go with OPP, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> just kidding. I don't know. I have no idea. But Julia, what did what did you what did you father daughter dance to? At well, your wedding? forty minutes ago, I sent this text to my dad. What song did we dance to at my wedding? And he has not yet responded. So I cannot recall. It was a deeply meaningful selection. <laughs> it was really fun. My dad's a great dancer. Like, I don't necessarily believe in that tradition, but my dad's just such a great dancer that I was like, how fun to get to dance with my dad. Um, it was probably something jazzy. Do you think he, he chose jazz? it? No. I mean, that's one point in this question is like, maybe your daughter should pick it. I don't know. I was going to say the father should pick it. I mean, I think he should run it by the daughter first and they should decide whether they both like it and find it meaningful and would be able to dance to it. But since that's sort of the moment that, you know, your dad gets to shine at your wedding and there's so many things that the bride and the groom get to pick at their wedding, it seems kind of great. I didn't have a wedding and I can't imagine my dad would be mortified at the idea of having to publicly dance with me at one. But I think if that had happened, I would have asked him to choose the song because it would have seemed more meaningful that it come from him. The like, Edible dances are a little weird anyway. Like, it's a strange tradition that I'm not sure I believe in, except for that I just like my dad, such a great dancer. It seemed really fun to like show that off. And I don't know. Make I don't it part know. Of the I mean, I, I don't think it seems any more edibly upsetting than your father giving you away at your wedding. I mean, you could get into deconstructing every single moment of the traditional American wedding and, and how it works. But to me, the most freeing moment of a wedding is usually when everybody starts dancing at the end. And that's when you actually see something about their personalities and desires and styles. My wedding was was radically dissociated from any of those rituals um, for all kinds of Southern Gothic reasons that I won't go into. But um, but there was, a, there was a lot of dancing. I don't know if any of it was... We did dance to a song with everyone gawping at us, but I can't remember what it was. The greatest advice I got about that for any impending... Uh, brides and grooms out there is edit your song. Like if you're not a great dancer and you don't want to spend the time learning to dance and you just, but you kind of want to like put in the time and like hug each other in a shuffly way for a little bit, just edit your song down to a tight 75 seconds. Like whatever song it is, it'll work. And everybody, <laughs> and then like get people to join or bring something else in. Like you're good. Um, that's a, That was a good tip that we got before our wedding. Just actually because I wanted to throw out one generic possible title, one that popped to mind was uh, was Stevie Wonder's Isn't She Lovely, which is one of the few songs I can think of that is a love song from a dad to a daughter. Granted, it's to a brand new newborn baby daughter. So maybe that feels weird to be, you know, a grown woman dancing to it. But I love Isn't She Lovely. So if your dad would be up to dancing to that, I think it could be a nice choice. There's a fantastically mawkish song that um, Paul Simon wrote to his daughter, right? Father and daughter. And it's... Every time I hear that song, I blubber like an infant. Just don't do Cats in the Cradle. Everybody will be just mournful on the floor by the end. It's too depressing. It's not a dance song. can't be a dance song. Mallory, you just asked, answered a question on your, uh, I think, most recent episode from someone who wanted to deny her dad his desire to walk her down the aisle because she did not believe sure did. in the patriarchy. And you disagreed with your guest, Anna Sale, about whether she should just go along to get along or hold the ground. Do you have views about the father-daughter dance as well? I don't have any particularly strong views about the father-daughter dance, um, as long as I'm not being required to participate. Uh, the only thing that I can think of is an anecdote that I really want to share, um, which is uh, Mary Shelley's relationship with her father. Um, <laughs> Do tell. It's really important to me. So uh, you guys may or may not know, she wrote a novella shortly after the death of two of her three children, um, called Matilda that was actually not published until, I believe, 1959 um, because it was the story of a young woman whose mother dies when she's very young, whose father flees because he can't uh, stand to look at her um, and is raised by her aunt like in, in the wilds of Scotland. She eventually finds her father as a young woman. Uh, they become uh, upsettingly close. He confesses his incestuous love for her and kills himself, uh, and then she moves to the woods and waits to die. Um uh, and she sent this book to her literary agent, who also happened to be her father, um, William Godwin. By all accounts, they had a, a, a normal relationship. This was not autobiographical. She was just in a pretty interesting headspace after losing most of her family. Uh, and he declined to forward it along to her publisher. Um, and for the rest of her life, they would write back and forth about it. And she'd say, what would you think of the book, Dad? I think it's fantastic. And he'd say, 
I, I, I don't, and, and I don't want it to be published because uh, everyone's going to look at me. And he never burned it, though. He never got rid of it. He kept it. It remained among her, you know, papers and her, her estate, um, and, and it is now published. And I just love the idea of being so confident in your own genius that you send this book off to your own dad and say, hey, let me know if you think this is any good. Uh, I have no spoilers for you. Um, do you, is it good? Is the book good? It's fab. Oh, it's fabulous. No, it's fantastic. I, you know, you can read it in an hour and a half. It's 80 pages. It's Mary Shelley. She's fantastic. It's better than The Last Man, certainly. Um, and I think that if you read it, it will answer all your questions and you will, by the end, <laughs> know the perfect song to dance to your daughter with. I can actually make you that promise. I can assure you by the end of that book, you'll know what song is right for you. Mm. My bourbon has finally kicked in, by the way. Good. I could do this for hours. Hi, this is Daniel Pollack-Pelsner from Portland, Oregon, and I have a kind of uh, pretentious and inconsequential question, but it's one that troubles me, and I appreciate your advice. I wonder, when is it appropriate to pronounce foreign names the way the locals do, and when does it just seem kind of uh, insufferable? So, like, you could say Chile, say, but Mexico or Argentina sounds a little much, and why do we say Marseille and Lyon, but not Paris? And I guess it's one of these questions where cultural sensitivity ought to decenter an American perspective, but ends up being kind of self-aggrandizing. So I'd welcome your advice. Thanks. Bye-bye. I have a theory about this. Take their vowels, but use your consonants and where they conflict your consonants win. So like with Paris, like you wouldn't say Paris, like that doesn't make sense. Your consonants win. You say Paris. But in terms of um, Chile, like you can say Chile. You don't have to but say Chile. But R Chile. is a consonant and you don't say Paris. Right. Our cons our consonants, not theirs. Right. Okay. Paris. Okay. Um, or like Chile, you can say Chile and not Chile. Okay. But you're fundamentally you're making it sound like an American English word. I'm hitting my R's hard. I cannot believe how well that theory works. How long have you been holding that in your back pocket? Don't know, it just came to me when I read the question today. I was oh, struck shit. by a no bolt. Way. <laughs> oh fucking. But of no course way. of course it falls down as soon as you start to get to cultures that are far linguistically enough from us that we don't know what vowel and consonant values mean, right? Like, what do you mean? I don't know, like Beijing or I'm trying to think of a, I don't well, know. Well, there you're abandoning the Kuala tone. Lumpur. How do we know how those are pronounced in their own languages? I mean, those are the, I studied Chinese for a minute. Those are the right vowels. They're not the right tones. You're abandoning their tones and their consonants. Right. But you got the vowels. I mean, but there's not like an alternative American way to, well, except for like Peking and you're getting into transliteration. Yeah. All right. Chinese is complicated. But um, I don't know. Like it works for most romance languages, I think. You're right that maybe not for everything. I, don't I mean, know. I think you do, you default to convention every single time or you sound like an idiot. I well, mean, Steve, just sound... on the other day on our podcast, you, you mentioned at a bakery speaking, that you were recommending in Troy a croissant, oh, <laughs> which I have enough. to say, Francophile that I am, when I go into a bakery, unless it is actually clearly staffed by a French speaker, I'm going to say croissant because that's just the accepted Americanized pronunciation. I can't, you'd words. have to teach me how to say it that way. I can't even. What a crescent roll. Can I have one of the crescents? <laughs> The moon-shaped, the, the waxing moon. How do you pronounce that term? You're in a bakery. You live in Oakland. I'm sure there's lots of great bakeries. Order one. I would say croissant. Yeah, yeah you're doing an American yeah. R. Yeah, we've um, been uh, called but, on this before on, on also on guacamole, which I'm sorry, but that is an Americanized enough <laughs> wait, term. Wait, we that, on this podcast? Well, yes, somebody wrote us on the Facebook page saying, how dare you say guacamole and not guacamole? Mm. Oh, I was worried that we had might have at some point inadvertently or vertently said <laughs> guacamole or guacamole which well and i mean part of what this gets into right is the fact that like certain accents and certain languages like for whatever reason uh, are associated with like prestige and culture and can be seen as pretentious and other languages and dialects are like perceived as being like worse than standard american dialect so there's often that question of like will i sound pretentious if i try to say something in french versus like maybe insensitive if i don't try to pronounce something in another language um like there's a ton to do with like like different associations and cultural histories um so it's it's a, it's a tricky question because like you might sound like an asshole if you say like croissant in in one situation and another situation if you like put a real like hard anglo burr on like Mexico, you might sound like you're like kind of being shitty. You're not saying that people are less inclined to follow the potentially perceived as 
less pretentious language that they're more likely to be deferential in the spirit of the old SNL joke about like or whatever. I can't even do it. That that you're not saying that people follow. They're more likely to invert and try and be deferential. I guess it depends where you are. It totally culture. depends. Like there were people who will go out of their way in part to demonstrate like, look, I have this like amazing cultural facility. I've been a lot of places. I'm very intelligent. There are other people who will maybe go out of their way uh, not to try to pronounce something um, correctly as kind of like a sort of jingoistic badge of pride and everything sort of in between. So there's lots of anxiety in all sorts of different directions. And it depends, I think, too, like, is it the name of a place? Is it the name of a food? Is it the name of a person? Like, I think person's names are more important um, as opposed to uh, more generic words. Generic's not the word I want, but like not proper nouns, if that makes sense. Like, right. You're, that's you, part of it as well. You're you're not changing someone's identity by the way you pronounce croissant. Yeah. I was thinking about that recently with the director Pablo Larraín, who the Chilean director who made Jackie and who made Neruda, this other great movie that's coming out soon. And it's always everywhere being pronounced Pablo Lorraine, which is, I guess, how it's spelled in English. But it does have that accent. And if you did a little bit of research into what the accent means, you could figure out that it's Larraine, right, with that accent on the end. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a test case. Like when I hear someone say Pablo Lorraine, I kind of think, yeah, they didn't really do their research. But Right. It's not his name. It. I mean, he, 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 people, right. So a proper name, you pronounce the way the person pronounces it. That, that I think that one's an easy one. Everything else to me is a complete minefield. I mean, where does deference shade into patronizing? You know, where does aspiration turn into pretentiousness? It's it's miserable. But I will say one thing about croissant is <laughs> I know I know you Empyrean snobs in in Brooklyn, I think you coastal snobs um, can't believe it. But this bakery in Troy, New York, was owned by a French woman. So that excuses your pronunciation. I think I might pronounce it Steve's way. Actually, I can't. It's like I'm too suggestible. But I think I might say croissant. I'll be honest, I don't really like croissants. I love them. I love them. Another question? Hi, my name is Kristen, and my question is whether it is acceptable to tell someone that you will pray for them when they're going through a hard time if you yourself are not religious. I frequently get asked from friends or family to pray for them for certain things, or I'll be talking to someone when it's apparent that that's what they want me to say. And I've always struggled with the idea of whether this is an appropriate thing to promise when I am not religious myself. In some situations, they know that, and in others, they do not. Thanks. I have this question often as an atheist. Uh, Mallory, you are the daughter of a minister. Want to kick us off? Two ministers. Two ministers. Everyone always forgets mom. All right. Um, Yeah. Sit with that. Think about that for a minute. I'm sorry. I think it kind of depends both on the people and and your own relationship to religion. If you are the type of person who feels generally, I don't have a religious outlook. It doesn't really bother me if, uh, if other people do. If it makes them feel better uh, when I say I'm praying for them and I'm certainly like thinking about them, wishing them well, looking to help them in any way that I can. And it feels comfortable to say that. You know, I, I don't think that you are like committing some sort of horrible falsehood. I think that's absolutely a smooth way to facilitate that conversation to say, absolutely, I will. Like, I think you are honoring the intention of that phrase. If you are the kind of person who feels like it would be a misrepresentation of, you know, your own relationship to spirituality to say, I'll pray for you. Um, I don't think that you should say it. I think you can just say, I'll keep you in my thoughts and please let me know if there's anything I can do. Um, I don't think you have to go along to get along if that does not feel if – if it would feel like a lie to say that, then I don't think that you need to say that. Um, yeah, and I think it's really fair for you to just say, absolutely, I'm wishing you the best. Um, and you don't have to say, I'll pray for you just because they would like you to pray. Yeah, that's usually the approach I go with. I'm keeping you in my thoughts is the best version of that. Part of the problem is that there aren't that many good alternatives. Like, sure, I'm sending you good thoughts – like, I'm sending you good vibes seems really good. Right. That gets a little weird. You know, there's sort of the, um, like, the holding you in the light type thing. Like, there's there's, oh, there's yeah, not, like, mm. I wish there was a, yeah, that's not one I use because it also feels like appropriating traditions that aren't mine that I don't fully understand. Um, I feel like I'm sending you courage or strength or something like that it comes somewhere in between, you know, that shows that you're trying to access some kind of, I don't know, almost like a harness some kind of emotional power for them, but you're not claiming a divine source for that power. 
Or if you feel like you can, uh, say, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Um, obviously, this won't work for everyone because there might be situations where you aren't actually willing or able to give help. But that's a really concrete way to offer support and love that also um, involves doing things. Um, so I think that can be a really great way to say, please let me know if there's anything that I can do to help. Um, I always that's feel pretty meaningful. Yeah, although I always feel like that phrase can be a little empty because like the person's probably busy and distraught and uh like actually it's often better to just show up with the help if you know them well enough mm. to like bring the casserole or pick up the kids or do the thing like the the right yeah you could offer like a specific suggestion like would it help if i brought over dinner anytime this week would it help if i yeah. could run an errand for you i think that part um, you know if you're close enough to really be able to deliver on such a thing that that can be helpful but it is yeah i t- i tend to avoid yeah. the the prayer since i don't actually pray yeah. Don't feel free not to say the word prayer. If anybody pushes you on it, feel free to say, I don't pray. Um, that's a pretty appropriate thing to tell somebody. Hopefully no one would push you on it. But, you know, you, you, if, you, if that does come up, you can absolutely just say, uh, I don't pray. Steve, what's your approach in these situations? Oh, um, yes. If someone's cornering you to express a religious sentiment that you don't feel or adhere to, that's no good. You've got to politely say, I think Mallory's nailed it you know you've got to speak up and say as neutrally as possible that's just not not you know you don't pray but um i do think that when someone's the question's not really phrased this way but when you're offering if you're offering deeply sincere thoughts and feelings to someone else it's probably best to do it in the way that reflects who you are and what you believe so if i think if someone quite religious was saying to me that they were praying as long as it didn't have that creepy proselytizing, you know, air to it, um, I would appreciate that that's their way of being. I wouldn't want them to accommodate themselves to my perceived right. atheism or agnosticism. Totally. At, at which point I'm not really receiving anything warm or sincere from them at all. So. Yeah. And I guess this is the atheistic point of view. But like, I sort of feel like it's all the same thing. I'm going to spend some mental time considering your plight willing my hope for a good outcome or you know uh peace with the bad outcome into your life like i'm not directing that to a higher power but i it feels like a really similar activity i guess if you were really religious it would not seem like a similar activity but i when people say have said that in situations in my life i definitely receive it as like yep i know yes that's extremely welcome like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree. I, I, I think that even though I might not engage in prayer myself, I would welcome someone saying at a difficult moment, I will pray for you. That wouldn't seem like, unless they, you know, somehow brought some Jehovah's Witness literature into it and started waving it in my face. I mean, that would feel like a generous gesture that they are doing the most caring thing that they can do in their worldview for me. Yeah. Right. And maybe find out in a non-intrusive way what framework the grieving person has for understanding what they're going through and attempt to say something that makes that stronger. Right. right? All right. Last question. Hello, my name is Noel and I live in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Uh, my question is, I am one of the many people who laments the recent election and I've gone from sadness to feeling galvanized, but I'm a little puzzled about how to be the most impactful in my civic engagement. Um, can you advise organizations to get involved with um, who best to write checks for? That's one category. Another category, who to volunteer with, what what to do, how to mobilize. Um, thanks so much, and I love your show. Bye-bye. The chagrin falseness of this question we must stop upon first. What an amazing name for a town. And just who is not in Chagrin Falls right now? I mean, I'm there. I'm so there. We all live in Chagrin Falls. Um, all right. Well, I, Google um, tells me that the local newspaper in Chagrin Falls is the Chagrin Valley Today Times. <laughs> subscribing. Um, I am subscribing. I, subscribe. Subscribe to your local newspaper. Subscribe to a really good national newspaper. Um, support. Everything that's likely to be endangered over the next four years, I mean, the obvious ones, I think we've talked about a little bit on the show already, Planned Parenthood, ACLU, 
Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Human Rights Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you have to kind of decide also in what in your area, what's the thing that's being the most damaged. If you're in a state, for example, where reproductive rights are really at issue, then there's all kinds of registries you can you can get involved with that do not only support Planned Parenthood's in existence, but, you know, that provide travel funds to help people get to places that they can reach and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing I would say is that is that, you know, Democrats, by and large, um, in the popular vote, tend to win at the national level. But so much of what um, vitiates that or whatever prevents that from being effective is how effective Republicans are from the bottom up, from a local level up. If you can get involved in local politics, it is a thicket and um, it can be an enormous pain in the ass. But that's what they're counting on. I mean, I live in a county that's been controlled by Republicans probably for 50 years. And um, it's a real, um, it it acts like a political, entitled political monopoly in every single way. And shifting this county blue is probably a 10 to 20 year, maybe not five to 10 year project, but it has a demographic inevit- inevitability behind it. Like that, that's not a small thing. It's not a small thing in the um, context of New York state politics. And you build those are the building blocks up to meaningful political resistance to these things that we presumably detest. No, I, I sort of think there are three levels and running for office is the main one. I had a f- disagreement with my husband about whether we would consider it a like, mark of success or failure as parents if our kids ever ran for office. And my position at the time was like, obviously, we wouldn't want them to become politicians. It would mean we'd completely failed as parents and we'd raised like heedless narcissists <laughs> who were desperate for attention and were sociopathic gladhanders and like... I want them to do good in the world, but like, obviously not that way. And he was like, how can you say that? Like, we're going to try and raise good people. Like, that's such a statement of disbelief in our country. And anyway, I would say this past election has completely changed my view, not about my own specific children and their aspirations. They can do whatever they want. But like, if you're someone who's ever thought about it, running for office, like, look into it, see if it's something you should do. Like the 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 abdication of politics to like the idiot class uh, of of reality show stunt stunsters like cannot it cannot continue so that's step step one step two i think obviously this is personal for me but i think it's also civically important is around journalism like i'm subscribing to everything i regularly read everything whose work i value that i have recently been reading for free on the internet um obviously our listeners have heard our push for slate plus over the last month but like you know, I subscribed to the New Yorker and the New York Times, but had not been subscribing to the Washington Post and Mother Jones. Like that's changing, you know, the, the places that do work that you value uh, pony up. Also consider donating to the Committee to Protect Journalists, which mostly does great work for endangered journalists abroad, but is an incredible institution that provides resources to journalists all over the place. Um, the ACLU obviously is pertinent to First Amendment concerns. And then in terms of you know, the other thing I've been thinking about is um, it's it's like a target-rich environment for who's going to be most affected, and there's also a lot of uncertainty around what the administration will actually do. But I've been thinking a lot about early childhood education and just, like, giving more people a fair and better start in life. That's where some of my additional attention has been drawn. There's a couple groups in New York City, including the CCC, which uh, looks out for children's welfare in various ways here. Um, but there's there's a lot of different local efforts there that I think it's worth researching. Yeah, I would add, you know, I think ACLU is fabulous, NAACP, Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, I would add to that MALDEF, which is the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, um, which works a lot um, with, like, advocacy, uh, you know, voting protection, um uh, advocating for the rights of immigrants, uh, and, and to that effect, also um, Border Angels, which is an organization um, in Southern California that is sort of a like a response to Minutemen. <laughs> um, it's it's focused on like migrant rights, immigration reform, and preventing immigrant deaths along the border. Um, and that's an incredibly valuable organization in terms of your own local community. If you live near a mosque or a Muslim community center, um, get in touch. 
usually they have websites like most churches do, um, and they will often have an outreach team. Um, I did this myself with with my local mosque in the Bay Area, um, and send them an email and let them know that like you're glad that they're a part of your community. You you know if you have the time and the ability, like you would love to maybe like visit, get to know them, get to know the like Muslims in your community. Um, offer to volunteer around the office if they ever need any help. Um, I think that that is like a meaningful way to get to know um, the people in your community and to build a relationship um, that's not just responding to like when horrible things happen or like if a hate crime occurs, um, but to just like express support um, and and assistance if it's needed. Um, those are all, you know, useful, meaningful things that you can do. Yeah. I mean, the, the things that you keep on reading in these analyses that are to me very chilling analyses by scholars of authoritarianism and so forth about what the Trump administration could possibly mean. They keep talking about civic organizations and the importance of, you know, pro- civic bonds. And really all that means civic, right, is, is citizens. It's just people talking to other people in various ranks of society. And I think anything that you do that sort of makes you know the people on your street and on your block and in your neighborhood better and understand where they're coming from is strengthening civic bonds in a way that may seem very small. Like I know the lady that walks the dog who I see on the street every day. But in fact, you're you're perform you're performing some kind of community making that could be very powerful in the future. All right. Well that's our call in show. What a delight, Mallory Ortberg, to have you on the show. A total pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Guys, thank you so much for allowing me to join. I hope we did okay giving advice in the presence of the professional advisor. You guys are fabulous. All right. Well, that was really fun. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Uh, thanks, Julia. Thank you so much. Uh, one more thing. Love at the lips was touch as sweet as I could bear. <laughs> I lived on air that crossed me from sweet things. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, and Mallory Ortberg, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Like a parachute, it won't work, it's not open. So don't close yourself off to the words that I spoke.